You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. For the last three episodes, I've been telling you a fantasy adventure story about two brothers in pursuit of a lost temple's treasure in the long-forsaken Valley of the Gods. If you haven't heard those episodes, go back and listen to them before continuing with this one. When we left the brothers Darl and Ben, they were sailing along the shore of Dragonfire Lake to avoid the attention of a fabled leviathan. But what other dangers await them as they venture deeper into this frontier of frontiers? Will they find the temple of the forgotten god, Raywin? What other wonders will they discover on the way? Join me as we continue this tale of high adventure. It's Cascade Rock, Part 4. Beyond the rock walls sheltering the cove, a gentle breeze pushed the mist across the open water in thick plumes and grasping wisps. The fisherman hoisted the ragged sails and steered the vessel toward the north shore. To their left, the sheer rock face dropped away as they sailed, and a dense, leafy wood emerged. The wood's flora crowded the edge of the water, where tall reeds whispered at the traveler's passing. Ben rubbed his sore arms and looked out at the strange tree line. A dragonfly swooped by. Its bubble-eyed head looked to be at least as large as his own fist, its body as long as his forearm. He was about to make a comment on this alarming discovery when a red streak shot out from the tall reeds, ensnaring the insect and retreating as quickly as it had appeared. Gazing through the stalks where the viscous blur had emerged, Ben saw two high-set yellow and black eyes above a broad, frowning mouth. The creature's throat ballooned out suddenly, making a guttural, croaking sound. Darl nudged him. Was that a toad? His brother said as the boat continued to slip by. That thing was as big as you are. Ben turned to the stern. Something, swimming swiftly just below the water, had bisected their wake and disappeared into the reeds where the great toad had been seen. He heard something like two boards clapping together, and then the blades of grass began to toss violently, accompanied by terrible sounds of splashings and thrashings. How big did you say this leviathan was, again? He asked the fisherman. That weren't the leviathan. The fisherman replied, without even looking back to see. Sounded like one of them great big water lizards. Right. 
That's not what a leviathan is. Nah, leviathan's too big to come this close to shore. Ben looked out toward the center of the lake, at the mist-covered dark water. It seemed suddenly forbidding, and he felt grateful to be away from it. And yet, within this tangled coastline lurked any number of perils. Trapped between the dark water and the dark woods, slipping ever forward toward some unknown doom, Ben shuddered. They sailed on as the morning sun rose above the western white caps, and the mist evaporated or swirled away and tucked itself beneath the overhanging boughs. They followed an endlessly twisting coastline that regressed into tendrilous offshoots, bending and disappearing behind the encroaching trees. They swept by these offshoots as if they were the dark alleyways of some seedy polis. Then slumped down on the bench and began to wonder if he had made a mistake coming out to this forsaken wilderness. You look glum, his brother said, sliding in beside him and leaning against the boat's hull with one boot up on the bench. Just wondering if we're actually taking the best course of action, Ben replied, and he was somewhat surprised by his own honesty. What do you mean? Darrell said. I thought anything was better than facing the crown of teeth. He made mocking claws with his hands on either side of his face, as if to indicate some frightening mask. Ben groaned. How do you not know about the crown of teeth? I do know about the crown of teeth, Darl replied with a defensive smirk. It's a crown that the Emperor awards to a loyal subject, and, for some reason, it gives him the right to terrorize people on the frontier. It's more than that, Ben said. Why didn't you listen to the lore we were taught? It's fine for humans to change history when it suits them, but we Hafkin have to remember. Otherwise, we'll believe the lies they tell about us, that we're worthless, degenerates, we're homeless because we don't work hard. We wander the land because we're always running from the trouble we've caused. What they want to believe about us. Darl shrugged. Let them. It's not entirely false. You're missing the point, Ben yelled with sudden fury. His voice echoed off across the water. Something stirred near the shore, sending ripples to intercept the vessel. The fisherman frowned and shushed them. Sorry, Ben lowered his voice. He rested his elbows on his knees and began recounting the story. When the immortal emperor, or his ancestor more likely, depending on what you believe about the nature of his grace, when he first started expanding his territory beyond the kingdoms of men to the wild country, the frontier, the humans found themselves in conflict with the elder races, the fey races, our ancestors. They saw the burrows and the fairy circles and the haunted goblin-infested bogs as a threat. All that wild needed to be tamed. So, they set about eradicating our kind, like so many pests, in a cellar. I know all this, Darl said. Get to the crowd of teeth. The crown of teeth was wrought with some dark magic, 
the kind humans use, the kind that requires sacrifice and blood and fire. The emperor would bestow it upon one of his knights to empower him to kill the boogeymen. The teeth were pulled from dead fae, not just orcs and goblin types. There are smaller teeth set in the crown as well, the teeth of ancient beings of great beauty that would have been immortal if not for their slaying. In any case, whatever the magic in that crown, it did its work exceptionally well. It was through the Lord of Teeth that our ancestors were driven into extinction. Only we remain, the half-kind, harried by their constant badgering. Well, the Lord of Teeth is too busy badgering us now to bother with you, said the fisherman. My people came here after one of the old Tooth Lords burned our farm. Why does the Emperor keep bestowing the crown, then? Darl asked. If it's just causing trouble. Because humans are cruel, men said dismissively, even to each other. The fisherman scoffed at this. We're cruel. Your kind go around swindling poor people out here on the frontier. We can't barely survive the winter, and your lot comes along with promises of magical prosperity. All you gotta do is plant these seeds, or drink this elixir, or run naked in the moonlight. And good, foolish people give you more than they can afford, and end up hungry. That's not true, Ven shot back. It's a little true, Darl shrugged. The fisherman scoffed again and waved a hand in dismissal. I know what's true. I don't need the likes of a couple lying half-breeds to tell me what's what. Maybe your story happened just the way you said, but ain't nobody better off because of it except the Emperor and his blue bloods. Ven was about to make a counter-argument, to point out that every human in the frontier was in fact benefiting from the legacy of the Tooth Lords. But his brother held up his hands. Let's not argue. Maybe Baron Redway isn't so bad either. I mean, I met him, and he was very agreeable. You met him? Ven asked. Darl's eyes made that rethinking expression. But... Once. Once? Why do you do that? Do what? Repeat everything I say like it's a question. But an angry question. That makes me feel stupid. I just want you to think about what you just said. Really consider it. Darl opened his mouth, but then his eyes fell on something off in the distance behind them. Are there other fishermen out here? Today? He asked their captain. The captain spun around, but just then, a curtain of mist passed in front of a small, dark vessel, obscuring it from view. I swear I saw a boat back there, Darl insisted. The fisherman cocked an eye at him. Not likely. 
The afternoon sun shone off the gleaming water as the day wore on. Darl kept an eye behind them, looking for the boat he was sure he had seen. The coastline kept twisting and turning and hiding itself behind trees and tall reeds. He prodded the captain to take them out into the deeper water so he could get a better view, but the captain flat out refused. I told you it ain't safe, the fisherman insisted, then seemed to side with the captain on this one. I didn't see the boat, he said, but there really might be something out there in the deep water. Darl groaned and finally let it go for an hour until he thought he saw a sail emerge from behind the tree cover in the distance. I'm not taking us out, the captain insisted more angrily. Don't ask again or I'm turning us around. That's actually not a bad idea, Darl said. I want to know who's following us. There's no one following us, Ven said. Let's just get to the temple and see what's there. The fisherman scoffed. You think no one has ever tried doing what you boys want to do? People stopped attempting to explore that temple when I was still young. It's a death trap. No one comes out alive. It's like it eats them, like it's a monster or something. Ven reflexively touched his chest where he kept the map secreted away in a hidden pocket of his coat. On the night Darl had submitted to arrest, Ven had stayed up late with his mother and lore master Gart, translating what they could of the inscriptions on the map. It warned of terrible danger, but maybe, armed with the information and the other inscriptions on the map, they'd be equipped to face that danger. We'll take our chances, Ven said. There were, after all, many dangers in the lands of men from which they had virtually fled, but far fewer opportunities to plunder a great treasure. The first sight of the temple came just after the sun crossed into its descending arc. In a wide cove, a stone peak appeared like some monolithic memorial set in a field of glass. The trees along the bank here towered on thick trunks, and their boughs spread out in great overlapping cumulus clusters, shading and darkening the water to a rich green. The captain steered the boat to the cove along the contours of the coast all the while casting eyes askew towards the deep water. Massive branches formed the crooked beams of a leafy ceiling overhead, while the bow of the ship cut through a carpet of flowering lily pads. So, what now? Ben said. There's quite a stretch of open water between here and that structure out there, if that's where we're going. Keep your voice down, the fisherman said. We'll approach it from the back side. The water is shallower there. You've done this before, right? Darl asked. The fisherman's face looked grim and distant. His eyes drifted to the stone structure, standing in the unshaded center of the cove. A long time ago, he said, intaking a heavy breath. I had a brother once too, you know. He fell silent and then shook his head. You boys are lucky I don't care if a couple half-breeds live or die, because if I did, I wouldn't have brought you here. And you better get off the boat quickly, because I don't intend to stick around long. I understand, said Ben. But we do have a deal. Come back before dark, 
or you won't see any payment. I'll be back, he replied, but I don't expect to find you boys here when I return. They continued on beneath the shade of the trees, paddling gently through the dark green water to circle behind the monolithic structure. The captain maintained the tiller, his eyes leaping about on high alert. Darl watched the woods suspiciously while Ven studied the temple. A disconcerting quiet seemed to hold sway in this forlorn cove. The lily pads bobbed with every stroke of their oars, and the ripples echoed out into the deeper water. Ven wondered what the motion might signify to the creatures swimming silently below the surface. Perhaps there was no great leviathan out there, but he had certainly seen the signs of large predators in the lake, and anything seemed possible in this haunted place. Now Ven could see a flat stone platform surrounding the monolith. Soon after, as they wheeled behind the structure, he saw a yawning, arched doorway. The temple now stood between the boat and the open water of the wider lake. The fisherman angled the vessel toward it. You boys will need to row as hard as you can, he said. We need to clear the deep water as quickly as possible. The Hafkin brothers swallowed and looked at each other. Just let me row, Darl said. You'll throw us off. Ven nodded, and Darl took hold of his brother's oar. Ready, the captain said. Darl grunted and pulled hard on the oars. They sped through the water, breaking out of the shallows into a narrow stretch of deep between them and the stone platform. Ven monitored their approach, glancing periodically down as the submerged portions of the temple structure became more visible. What stood above the water, he realized, was merely the top of a terraced ziggurat, a massive structure. Slow down, the fisherman hissed. We're nearly there. Darl led up, and the captain glided them alongside the stone platform. The platform rose a mere foot or so above the water. Get out! Quickly! The brothers exchanged looks. Right, said Ben. Right, his brother repeated. You'll be back before sunset, Ben confirmed. Move, you brutes, the fisherman said, nudging Darl. I need to get to safe waters. Seconds later, Ben and Darl watched a pale-faced fisherman frantically rowing away from them toward the perceived safety of the shallows. He'll be back, Darl said in an uncertain octave. Otherwise, he doesn't get any of the treasure. A sick feeling settled into Ven's stomach. He turned and looked at the opening to the temple's interior. <sighs> treasure, he sighed. Right. The interior lay below the water level. What were the odds that it wouldn't be completely flooded? And if it wasn't flooded, what were the odds that any treasure at all lay inside? And if there was treasure, what were the odds that they could actually bring it out? He reached into his coat and touched the map as if it were a medallion of faith, a holy artifact. He brought it out, unfolded it, and squinted at the runic writing around their current location on the map. The first inscription roughly translated into something like, In time, waters recede. He repeated the phrase aloud. What does that mean? Darl said, hoisting his pack on one shoulder. I don't know, but keep it in mind inside. 
for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Weep Bar. Musical production help from Mackenzie Stubbert. Consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more lies and half-truths.